Welcome back to the Warhorse Podcast, episode Magical 21. The website is goldengoatguild.net. Golden Goat Guild is the handle on Instagram. We just closed down the Winkler Knives collaboration. So if you didn't get in, you're out. And um, hopefully you'll be poised to grab the next collaboration whenever that arises. Um, I got a lot of good feedback from episode 20. If you've not listened to episode 20 with the one and only James Bowery, you're wrong. I encourage you to go and check it out. What else can we say? Our guest this evening, our guest in this episode is um, a man who, for the time being, we will refer to him only as D. Um, I think D is going to be a regular contributor to the Warhorse. Um, frankly, a brilliant all-around mind and uh, physical specimen. Incredible life experience. I'm not going to steal his thunder and, you know, he's not, as you'll see, he's not perhaps the guy who cares to order it out for everybody to to make the interesting details of his life known. Uh, Suffice to say that he has been in some situations that while most of us would never want to find ourselves there, um, tend in the right people to develop or bring out surprising powers of perseverance and insight, personal power. And uh, I would I would describe D as a guy who has access to a sort of live wire and maybe recursively is as you'll find out, you know that's part of his, his uh, basic livelihood, Um, but it's an apt description in, in many cases. He's a guy who's attempting and succeeding to find coherence in his, in his life, and who, again, in a just world, 
this is the sort of character who who might be on television talking to us as we sit, you know, on the couch looking for something interesting to inspire or um, educate. One of the things about dialogue in a general sense is that it's while on the one hand you know you could like graphically represent a set an hour or two of dialogue and you could see its highs and lows its terminus its origin point etc you could not with a graph however as far as I know and without going to great lengths and probably probably just putting in a bunch of work and still missing the point you cannot get to the granular level of the unspoken that third thing that arises um, communication itself and understanding that is while on occasion one of the participants in a dialogue may become aware of that, you know, that fact. Like you have the fabled peak experience. However, you know, off, I think, well, clearly, more often than not, it's, it's intended almost to be an ongoing thing. It's not, dialogue is not an admonishment. It's not an um, auditory. It's not a report, you know, it's not anything like that. It seems to me to not be an accident of our historical understanding that the dialogue, you know, comes up among the Greeks, the Socratic method. Um, and is identified as not only a sort of learning tool um, but is honored and revered as a a thing a reified thing within the world notable as well that as history progresses it's definitely cherished along the way however in oppressed societies such as our own oppressed by both the retard and the criminal alike um you know, dialogue begins to take on some other form, the false, the phony, the staged, the hoax. So many times, 
you know, for ex- for example, right now you could jump on any of the news stations and you will see what could be described as a dialogue between one expert or another. They never de- divulge, the, you know, the long-standing CIA ties or intelligence community ties that they nearly always have, whether that was just, you know, something like a Rhodes Scholarship or um, an internship or the funding of this or that dissertation. Likewise, speaking of coherence earlier in societies such as ours, dictators, the powers that be, the cryptocracy, all these sorts of characters must have figured out at different times along the way, you know, maybe a guy like Machiavelli um, or Mao knew that in the end, it's not good enough to just put up your propaganda. It's not good enough to allow the the Samistat to filter through and, um, you know, let persist those efforts at um, rationality, you know. Um, And dialogue, in my opinion, is not necessarily rational in terms of its content, but the form is is rational um, if you take my meaning it exists independent of us as like part of the logos the structure of our experience of being and the goal I think with your serious oppressor which we see has has been stalking, you know, this country for 60 years at least, um, consciously, is to dismantle not finally the individual. You know, they they tend to sort of at at a certain point in some of these regimes, that's experimented with or that's a goal for a time. But ultimately, it's to isolate the individual, which itself is usually enough to, if not drive him or her crazy, um, disperse from him his values, his beliefs, his goals, his dreams, such that all that will just wither. And um, the attack on speech on oratorial skills on presentation in general goes hand in hand with this attack and and I'm, goes without saying here this is um, either an ambush or an undermining long term sort of attack even now you'll probably get one of these corrupt, idiotic operatives on television or in government 
testifying to the powers of, you know, dialogue, negotiation, speaking out, you know, two-faced sort of thing constantly. At this point, it's it's got to be a mystery for all of us who who can, you know, choke this down and what their state of mind is. However, this degradation of dialogue is in my opinion noteworthy. You'll recall some discussion about the golden age of being a writer, um, of the writer, let's say. Going to Paris, you know, taking a train through Germany or a boat out of some English port and ostensibly being tasked with writing some story. But it always seemed to me that the great value, while the monetary reward was substantial enough to survive and support a family for, you know, be it as a short story writer or some sort of journalist, um, essayist. Of course, we know much, much of this even then was um, paid political chicanery sort of stuff. Just, you know, write it up how you want as long as it's angled this way. As long as the conclusion is what we want here uh, from the Frankfurt School or from the State Department um, or from whatever lobby group. Sure, fine. Hemingway, we love your style. Write it up. Um, That's all good. The adventure was great. But as well, the opportunity to... engage in periods of leisure genuine leisure yeah yeah drink some absinthe smoke a little opium of course but um, sit at the coffee shop and have a good two or three hour exchange with any random intelligent informed person much less uh, run around in those the little coterie of I guess you know probably equally paid off turds if we're but some of them were not you know um, and even if they were at that point the ideological devotion was such that and the the, the fields of whatever inquiry of you know your dialogue were were kind of wide um, to imagine two ivory tower types meeting for coffee with their covid masks on and their tiktok accounts worrying you know and the the drone and the the weird like um high-pitched, it's like a high-pitched drone, I guess. Almost a insect-like whir of your average Starbucks or similar just corporate shithole coffee joint. And we're not inspired, right, to, uh, to engage in, in some 
free-form flowing dialogue. Now, there's an art to being a conversant, um, a percipient in conversation. And there, while the distinction may be academic or something in the podcast era, um, what we're going to shoot for, what I'm shooting for on the Warhorse dialogue um, episodes is is like a learning curve, you know. Um, I don't. That's thus the revolving cast of characters constantly expanding is the goal. Thus, the opportunity for guests to remain anonymous to reveal um, themselves at some point if they wish or not whatever you know Um, back to the clamping down the the oppression and the repression Um, I don't know why but now I'm thinking of that famous tweet you know in the 60s you could go be a mercenary in the Congo and now I will get kicked off of Twitter for calling somebody gay that's got my vote for the all time greatest tweet whoever that guy was if, if you ever um, divulge your identity I will PayPal you $5 for a beer um While I am, I mean, it should be clear for hardcore listeners, you know, I'm advocating in the total war for the total response. All fields, um, and I prepare myself and train in, you know, all of these fields. It's one that's yet available at this point. Um, Dialogue, discussion... And it happens to be sort of, you know, peripheral, adjacent to my real wheelhouse. Um, so it, I suppose, makes some sense, um, you know, despite my my non-professional my non-professionalism uh, rearing its head here and there, right? Nonetheless, to persevere against the prevailing trend to either adopt mimicry or simply keep quiet, which is necessary, of course, uh, at times. Maskarovka, thievery, criminality, um, a moral spirit a sliding moral scale is is war and if you're going to make war I think you better get used to it um, it comes easier to others and uh, that's okay so <clears throat> the drift here being that 
again, and I'm not, I'm not trying to, prof, you know, profess my, um, my righteousness in, uh, you know, fighting the powers that be through the spoken word or some such nonsense. Um, probably even more highfalutin than that, however, um, more lofty is, you know, the attempt to, um, to engage in the experiment, the faith that is dialogue, open, actual dialogue, you know, back to this plotting the idea, you don't, you don't know where it's going to go. Um, and if you do, you know, it's, it's kind of something else. You can have, I think, a structured dialogue, which interviews are often this way. Um, so far, my incredibly brief experience being an interviewer, of course, I'm trying to be professional. I've prepared questions, but for the most part, I just disregard them. Um, we'll see how that works out in this, in this experiment. So this was completely off the cuff, and um, I'm going to throw it over to this to this discussion with myself and D. D imparts some of his background at some point, but we launch right in, and I I, I do think it's valuable to note some of the areas of expertise or, you know, maybe more the regions of the topics that we're, uh, we see eye to eye on and that we both think are important and that may, you know, these are not, again, Joe Rogan um, guests. These are guys working f- way farther out on the fringe with Honest, frankly, much more at risk than your average well-paid and uh, much revered and loved Joe Rogan, Sanjay Gupta, you know, accepted here. So, um, PRI, the Postural Restoration Institute, is a truly fascinating, underappreciated um, area that. D and I will, I think, be returning to. D is an expert in all areas of fitness, health, longevity, diet, nutrition. And, you know, here is an, um, a professional in his field, yet an autodidact in, in all of these realms. And as you'll find out, you know, he, he's self-funded. Um, he's doing massive long-term, you know, self-experiments and in a very both unorthodox and rigorous way. If that, um, you know, these are the types of seemingly it's a paradox. However, when you start to unravel it, um, you may appreciate the crossover that a guy like this brings. Um, As well, um, I would say well on his way to a PhD 
in philosophy, if not, in, clearly he's not um, ignorant or silly enough to pursue something like that, something valueless uh, in this current climate. But very few people do you meet who pursue a subject of inquiry methodically um, while also bringing a very open mind. And it's pretty rare to meet the guy who will pursue anything methodically even. I've known D online for probably five, five or six years and um, we don't even go into what to me are the most um, maybe not the most but some of the most fascinating background and life experience that he brings. One of the um, I believe will, I, what I believe will be a continuing topic uh, a link that we share is experience living in Portland not a native D um, but immersed enough to really get it at a pretty crucial time in Portland's history and yet again a guy who's beyond well well beyond uh, mere conservatism uh, mere liberalism etc and I hope to to dredge up more of his stories observations because there's a love for that place for both of us and a love for many of it's not just a place yeah it's um structurally physically there's a lot to appreciate about the northwest in general and specifically portland um for anybody at the same time the weird confluence um, over time of differing points of view, radical points of view into what is really just pioneer stronghold. Created some behavior patterns, some ways of coexisting, if you will, that I have not run into anywhere else and Again, not to be too highfalutin, um, but it's something about, it's an American phenomenon. You know, people use these idiotic phrases like, the most European country in America. Like, shut the fuck up. It has nothing to do with, beyond the fact that most or many of our origin points trace back to Europe, etc., you know, these cultural trappings and whatnot, we're all aware of this. Um, we're talking about psychic, uh, extant, temporal carrier waves of, you know, influencing behavior behind the scenes, um, and not just behavior, but negotiation, interaction, what have you. So we touch on that a bit and a ton of other stuff. I hope you find it fascinating. I did. One of the best conversations I've had in a while. Though I have um, 
like I said, maybe the uh, the dark curtain is is lifting. I've had a number of other meaningful, memorable, detailed, and expansive conversations of late, and um, this is the the great reward, I think, of dialogue. Here we are, fucking two, you know, 28, 23,000 years into the sort of Christian, you know, experiment or model, whatever you want to call it. And um, we're still bitching about a lot of the same stuff. Media in general gets away with using a thin gloss of that history, the profundity of it, slapping it on the latest um, technological three or four degree turn in the road and drumming up a bunch of interest and money and blah, blah, blah. As we said in earlier episodes, I didn't say it this way, but almost every Huberman lab... And I, I'm not bagging on the guy. He's doing good work. But every, you know, episode is sort of... And same with Peterson, um, many others who are tending towards... Or at least oftentimes tending towards honesty. Um, these are, to me, sort of scientific justifications for what orthodoxy or Buddhism um, or various primitive cultures around the world have known for a long, 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 long time. And we're still wrestling with all the same shit. Animism, panentheism, sexuality, merging with animism, and negotiating with orthodoxy. Just some of the things that are, uh, you know, the creatures roaming around and the the weird jungles of my back brain where my daemon, you know, flutters up bunny-like into the tree to observe and do his reconnaissance. Brings me back these reports from the fecund swamp or uh, Hill and Dale. The impassable ravine. So we wound our way up here to 30 minutes, mostly because I worked out, had a hot chocolate, and um, didn't talk to anybody all day just to string together some coherent sentences for you guys. Nothing like the, um, the electricity that D brings. So I hope that you guys take notes. I have... Um, so much, so many names are dropped. I have a good bit of them that I will supply in the notes. Not to worry. That's a promise that I will keep to at least make a half-ass attempt at it. Beyond that, if if you start to be interested, I would grab a notepad because, um, yeah, I think that's what I'll title this episode: "The Live Wire" or something along those lines. Okay. I hope you enjoy. I appreciate the feedback. I'm going to cut it off, Um, you know, 
halfway or somewhere through. So if you're not subscribed, you can make your way over to Patreon for now. By the way, if anybody knows anything about Substack, I'm, I'm going to look into it soon. Uh, I've been meaning to do this for months now. But if you have some experience and want to share, I always appreciate the random internet goer piping up. So, if you, for that said, I'm not shutting down Patreon, as far as I know. So, if you want to hear the rest of the episode, navigate your way via the links on the website, goldengoatguild.net, or those in the link tree on Instagram, the handle Golden Goat Guild, Andrew Edwards. By the way, I am the author of the novel King of Dogs, which you can pick up at all your favorite bookstores. Uh, autographed copies are available on the website. I will be um, taking to the road soon. And maybe I've set things up pretty well so there won't be any lag or much lag in terms of getting things out to you guys, responding to DMs, this sort of stuff. But I will be taking to the road. The Warhorse will take on the flavor of that land, that wild, untamed, beautiful land of our forefathers. Very excited about this. So, what else? I think that's it. I think that's it. If I missed anything, I will post it up on Instagram and or Patreon. Thanks for your continued interest and support. It means a great deal to me. Um, so here we go. My discussion with the live wire D. Okay, so um, so this guy, this this either Pinker or Gladwell, is telling this totally like off-brand story um, about this artist, this novelist who is uh, like a late bloomer, right? Which is which is kind of dovetailed right. with some of the other work I've been reading lately. So I don't know if you ever heard of uh, Dark Horse, the Dark Horse book, which is about and David Epstein, who's like a famous generalist. Uh, he was like a Sports Illustrated writer. And he talks about sampling. So he talks about how like Tiger Woods is not the paradigm for um, for talent or, or or I guess finding your niche or whatever you want, whatever fucking you know trendy lingo you want to use. Yeah. Uh, but but that Federer is right, Roger Federer, the the tennis player who I don't know a lot about, but Federer did all kinds of other shit um, before he did this. So this novelist, right? It's it's just been. This has been like kind of haunting my psyche for some reason. He started real late in life and he had, they were both lawyers, uh, him and his wife, you found out. And that she basically was like, hey, 
you want to do this thing, like do it. And it, it's like your story. It, I mean, it, it, it took him 20 years to like pound out this first book of his. Right. And, and he finally, you know, I mean, don't, I'm sure there's some survivor bias. He, he did finally get hit it. But I think what's important is that he had a patron, right. Or a patron, whatever patron. Yeah. He had his wife. Right. And so lucky right. for me, right. Uh, I can do another apprenticeship. I'm free, dude. Like I set myself up so well and you know, Practical advice, I guess, for people is that the trades are still a place where you can do that. Um, I got into the utility business at a very young age, and I basically work in a control center now. So I'm not in the heat. I'm not in the elements. I'm not in the cool. And, you know, that's not for everybody. But what I'm saying is, is I have a, a job that is not mentally taxing or physically taxing. And so for a lot of people, that's just that's going to make them you know, maybe lazy and maybe it's not ideal for them, but I do have to go punch the clock, but, but I'm free. And I basically have, my employer is my patron. So I can fuck around after work and I can do jobs on the side. I can do whatever I want. And I know that I'm always going to have, I have this security blanket. I mean, as much of a a security blanket as somebody could have in 2022 in the United States of America. So I feel like I'm super lucky in that regard. And you're right. Like anybody that's not, like a that girl. I don't know if you if you know what that means, but like those are the that there's this whole vibe on YouTube, this culture of manifestation, right? So you get a, a bunch sure. bu- and a bunch of these girls who are vegans three years ago, they're now carnivores, um, diet wise, and and they're always talking about manifesting, right? And they right, yeah. And I can't be too critical because I have a little bit of woo, like right, sciency glossed uh, a patina. <laughs> I have a patina of woo, woo, woo or mysticism yeah. over my own um, scientific understanding. But there's something like that's, there's something in me that wants to revolt against this whole aesthetic, right? Which is like a 22 year old girl telling you, you know, how awesome life is and how she's like, I don't know. Exp- I don't know. Exp- yeah. Everything's working for me right now. It's like, <laughs> yeah. no shit. Yeah. You're 22 years old and every door is open for you. Yeah. Meanwhile, the 22-year-old kid is getting kicked in the balls 20 times a day, if, no matter what he does. Yeah, I know this aesthetic. Well, well, and so they call it that girl, right? And and okay. And, and so now there's also sprung up a counter that girl movement, which is like a that girl who reads. You know what I'm saying? Like, she's different because she reads, I don't know, what's who's Vonnegut or whatever, and she's she's done an Enneagram personality test and she's an INTJ and, (laughs) and, but it's the same vibe. Right. And so, and, and that, that's a part of me that I think is something that's been like a general principle of mine is like, no matter how different we all, we think we are from all these people, dude, the people that come thousands of years years after us, they're not going to make distinctions between you and me and that girl, (laughs) like in their mind, we're all going to get rolled into this one sort of, I don't know, vibe. And maybe that maybe it is something that like a conservative cultural critic would say like, oh yeah, America was suffering from spiritual malaise. And it's obvious when you look at all these people, even those people that were like in, you know, pure revolt to that idea, you know, right. And, and that is in some sense, a sign of malaise because it's like, dude, your whole entire identity, your whole entire philosophy is negative. You know, it's via negativa. And so I guess that's become a principle for me is like, escaping my own neuroticism, which I know I told you I was high strong earlier, not on the recording, but, and, and I am, and I have, yeah. I have a bit of a neurotic personality. I've realized, um, that escaping that requires 
some sort of genuine act of of creation right and so that's what youtube has become for me and it's just the starting point right now like i know it's not good you know there's a famous ira glass uh like three minute clip where ira glass is talking about uh taste and he's like saying when you first start creating something you know um there's a gap he calls it the gap and you know that like what you're making is shit (laughs) like this is fucking awful right (laughs) but but you but you know but it's a great sign because you know what you're aiming for you know what you're striving for if you're like hey this is shit it means you know like what you want to do and so but but i feel like and Ernest Becker talks a, a lot about this in the denial of death which i think is just a fucking incredible book that everyone should read uh, especially neurotic high strung people like me who who maybe like I had this real puritanical ideal when I was a kid about hard work and my my parents encouraged that despite the fact that they weren't Calvinistic they had imbibed and drunk very deeply from like this pragmatic well of Americana where and my yeah. and my stepdad was an immigrant on top of that so he had this like plucky hardworking like ethos about him and I worked from a very young age and so I spent a lot of time like deriving my identity from that and and becker talks about how you know that uh and he's leaning heavily on um one of freud's reinterpreters who wrote oh my god what's his name i don't eric von neumann i don't have a jamie i don't have a jamie is that what rogan always says jamie look that up hold on i'm gonna look it up yeah yeah uh auto rank excuse me oh okay underappreciated genius art and artist but anyway becker's point is that like that kind of uh, striving is evidence of neurosis and contributing to to your neurosis. And the only way out of that um, is to find a project, a real project that you have control over. And another part of a part of that, that that I think is sort of endemic in society is when you don't have that, you start looking at people and you start trying to control other people. Okay. And when you combine that with social media, uh, Wow. And react yeah. and this reactionary impulse, you get, oh my God, all you fucking sinners or and or degenerates, you need to join the Orthodox Church or whatever and like reform your life. And if everyone would just it's like a fucking TED talk. If everyone would just do this thing that I'm telling you, like the world would be such a better place. And so for me, like genuine spirituality, this is what I've started saying at least. Um, the only way that it can manifest itself is by continually refocusing the urge that you have to control other people like back inwards. Back yeah. yeah. And, and if your jihad doesn't like doesn't face interiorly, then you've got a problem. And like this is what all this is what every great master has said for twenty five hundred years. This is what Campbell says. Right. Like the journey, uh, the hero's journey, like it starts at this this threshold. And I think the threshold is uh, where you pay the sacrifice to, I don't know, whoever the guardian is that takes you through the underworld. Right. But, but all, but all of that is like telling you initially, dude, you have to face inward. And so I don't know if we have a culture that I just started doing this like five years ago. (laughs) So I guess I thought I was doing it when I was 20, you know, but I wasn't. And I, I don't know if that's because we're stuck in perpetual adolescence in America or if you really just don't become a man or start becoming a man until you're 30. But all this stuff has kind of started just clicking for me lately. How, how did I? How did we get off on this tangent? I forgot. Were we talking about Gladwell? I think we started with YouTube. Oh, right. So that's my yeah. that's my project. You know? Yeah. And, and if you don't have that, if you don't have, unfortunately, strangely, ironically, some sort of physical 
uh, manifestation that of something that you're like working on, you're going to start trying to work on other people. Yep. You know, absolutely. And, and, and that, that to me is, is neuroses, you know, is neuroticism. And, and that's why, that's where we're stuck at. I think, you know, culturally. Yeah. Um, I was just listening to this, uh, lecture that I listen to like every year. I just, I, I'm, I just neurotically, I guess I go back to it because, and it's David Milch, the guy who wrote like NYPD blue and Deadwood, And, okay. um, he was Robert Penn Warren's sort of protege, but you know, he was a junkie for a long time. He was a thief. He, he describes all this as like an ambivalence towards order, but you're talking about like a legitimate genius of introspection and like human nature. But the way he formulates kind of what you were just saying, perhaps, you know, so it's more accessible to everybody. He refers to the Bible and, you know, Paul, and it, it's not just by faith alone, it's by works. Um, so whether that's, you know, we look at works as your project, um, we're definitely, you know, something you said about not like we're not becoming men until 30 strikes me as true. And then the other thing that you said that I recognize for sure is, um, what was it? I'm forgetting it now. Well, I guess just the, just the, the overemphasis on work for work's sake. Right. So when I'm, when I'm using this David Milch, like faith versus works concept, to have, well, as a writer, like if I'm not writing, I'm not really attached to the world. It's like, I think that for the artist, that is my, and it may be your or everybody's, I don't know if it's universal or not, but it's like, um, that's the way into the world is that, you know, I have this project that I do, whether it's a novel or you know, for now it is this, um, this podcast slash novel and, and other things, but I think, oh yeah, that's what I was going to say. The thing that I a hundred percent agree with is without that project or without the faith by works or however you want to formulate it, I know about myself. I start looking outside. That's the thing like, oh, you know, and at collectivize or you aggregate that. And now you do have these movements of, groiper versus ortho bros versus trad cats and and yeah it's i mean it's fine i i support you know whatever anybody wants to do towards religion but without that it sounds like you have individual you have like individuated it and gone through that phase of maybe being pulled into one camp or another see but i yeah but but then i feel bad like phrasing it that way because <laughs> or or i'm ambivalent about it so like when you said you're ambivalent about order it's like sometimes i'll walk down the street i'll have my headphones on i'll be zoning out and it's like i'll think to myself like a lot about uh about people that are i don't want to say obsessed right but who are like trying to manufacture a something beyond principles beyond a set of principles 
and set up this sort of eternal verities, right? And who are maybe hell-bent on this idea of if it's not rigid, you know, it's not really true. Um, I just don't want to throw anyone under the bus now. Um, but I guess, and, and I don't want to say that I've moved through, I've moved through this position, but I did like I did. Yeah. I mean, but maybe there's some other way too. And, and I'm not saying I'm beyond that position, but I, I tend to agree with like, when you read all these developmental guys, uh, like, uh, Ken Wilber or whatever, and all these psychodynamics people, Dude, they do create a hierarchy of being <laughs> and they do Absolutely. create this. And I start thinking and and they justify it. And but I start thinking because I my one of my operating principles is Peronian skepticism. And for me, that's like you just can't know. You can't have psychological certainty. And I've got a lot to unpack there because that was what broke me of religion. And so that communal expression of order, um, not entirely right, because we can never like, there's always this residue of humanity that you can't like pull off of yourself. But dude, yes, I think Jung and like, and Adler and all of the existential psychologists, because I definitely am that or you know, lean that direction. I vibe, if you will. I will. I think yeah. they're on this. I think, I think they're on to something when they're saying, you know, a peak experience is, is in some sense more individuated than, um, than that communal experience. And so that's something I'm striving after, but, but I guess what I'm saying is, is like the, the rigid guys, they want to frame it as like, <sighs> If you're not willing to engage in an act of gratuitous violence to defend your your worldview or I think worldview is an appropriate term, but whatever your pr belief, your principle, your this or that, you're not serious about it. You're not a real man about it. OK, and my problem with this is that the these are the reactionary types that we're talking about. This, these are this is the sick left wing who go, it doesn't have to be framed that way. Right. It can be there. You can have an abundance mentality instead. Right. But to right. me, you're you're but to me, both of those people are buying into this idea that there's only two ways to, to frame it. Like either there's limited resources in the world. It's almost like the, the argument, the same argument goes that takes place between genetic determinists and environmental determinists. And I'm not I'm trying not to be like big brain centrist here and say I've tried transcended that. Dyna that dynamic or that dialectic, but that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. You know? Okay. And, and so then that, that becomes, okay. So you're one of those people that are trying to have non dual consciousness. Right. And I feel like that's a little mystical. What I do is walk down the street and go, why do I feel so compelled to frame things in binaries? Okay. In, to begin with, why does it have to be, I will exercise violence to achieve my will in the world, or I will exercise soft power? And of course, partially the reason we know is that because there's the masculine principle and a feminine principle. <laughs> and yeah. even even the non-binary people, like they they just it doesn't work, right? It just you your consciousness won't let it happen. You just everything resolves back into this sort of binary or bimodal distinction. And I don't know if there is a way to transcend that, but I'm not opposed to just playing with the idea instead of committing 
to one thing or the other. And I think so that makes me treasonous, I guess, in some ways to both camps. And so that's that's where I'm at. And the reason I think, though, that we might have to make a choice is like there is a fundamental asymmetry um, built into man right or mankind and, and into existence itself so the way this is framed in philosophy has traditionally been um i think either heidegger or hegel is picking apart the medieval scholastics and you know aquinas wrestled with this this question of porter no i'm recording get out buddy thank you aquinas wrestled with this question of being and so this is how you ended up with that via negativa, which is something that sort of I don't vibe with, right? To begin with, you can't really say what it is being, right? Existence. You can just say that it's not this or it's not that. And eventually when you use a predicate, right? Um, something that encompasses more and more of reality and a, and a predicate is like, you got subject and a predicate in a sense. So you say like, Daniel is green. Well, I'm white, but you, subject, predicate. Daniel's a subject, predicate is green. So when a predicate like with a predicate like being, it got to the point with the medieval philosophers, they were saying it was encompassing so much of reality that the predicate becomes meaningless. Okay. And this is a question that we've wrestled with in Greek philosophy and like Western man, European man has wrestled with since Parmenides and Heraclitus. <laughs> like to the point where they're like, all is change, right? And our flux yeah. and like all is unchanging. But yeah. but like Neither of those things really, there's a sense in which neither of them are telling you very much. And so Hegel would say like the predicate starts to swallow up like the subject and the way his favorite um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis was about being. And he said, you know, we think that being is this solid, stochastic, essential sort of thing. Um, and there's a tendency to do that on the right. Right. And that race is sort of reified. Culture is sort of reified. And then the left goes, no, it's all flux. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, and then if it's if it's all flux, then like what is it that is um, maintaining itself through this this flux? And Heidegger or Hegel, excuse me, um, says that becoming sort of is the um, the synthesis of those two things. And so there. And this guy, Ezram Kohak, I'm saying his, his name wrong. He wrote this book I really like called Between the Embers and the Stars, which I think you'd really love. He talks about this problem. Um, I, I should probably look it up, actually, just read you the passage. Yeah. But but he talks about how when he and this is this is getting at the difference between language and experience itself. But when he was sitting in this cabin in New Hampshire, because he kind of did this uh, uh, Walden Pond, Henry David Thoreau thing. And he was staring across the, the vast expanse toward the moon, right? Which is what, 280,007 miles away or whatever. 287,000 miles away. He, he just knew, right, in his bones. And I don't mean in the logical sense. I mean in the sense that Unamuno would describe that's beyond logic. It's the vital reason is the way that uh, Ortega y Gasset would describe it. It's something that you just know in your bones. And he knew that there was something different between being and non-being, even though the medieval philosophers and, and even Hegel basically ended up at this point where like, look, these two things are fundamentally interchangeable. You're not even saying anything when you say anything about being. What's the difference between that and non-being? And I just know that too, but that's my faith. 